Good afternoon again, everybody. Um, welcome again to the Crisis Times of Care and COVID-19 um, as part of the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. Uh, we have an absolute uh, star-studded uh, lineup today, in, uh, essentially national experts who are going to be giving their impressions on how to approach Crisis Times of Care in this setting. Um, next slide, please. Next slide, please. Um, in our panel today, we have Dr. Asha is a pulmonary and critical care physician and is an integral part of the ACCP Mass Critical Care Task Force. Uh, she has served on the IOM and CDC panels for influenza and crisis care and is past chairperson of the ACCP Disaster Response Network. Um, joining her is Dr. Jeffrey Dichter, who is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota. He is a member of the ACCP Disaster Network and an executive committee member of the Task Force on Mass Critical Care since its inception in 2007. He is an expert in disaster preparedness, has several publications, including two chest consensus statements, and is the chairperson of the Minnesota Critical Care Working Group. Um, Dr. Laura Evans is also joining us. She is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the University of Washington, and she is the medical director of critical care at the University of Washington Medical Center. Um, Dr. Ryan Mills is an infectious disease and critical care physician uh, in San Diego, California. He is a member of the Task Force for Mass Critical Care and the current vice chair of the CHEST Disaster and Global Health Network. Uh, Dr. Amit Opal is the director of critical care at NYC HNH Bellevue Hospital, the flagship hospital for the nation's largest public hospital system. He serves as senior clinical advisor for critical care for the network and will provide first-hand experience on the New York City uh, surge of COVID-19 that happened earlier this year. And lastly, I'm Dr. Mukherjee. I'm the director of the medical ICU at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and also serve as the medical director of the hospital's special pathogens program. Uh, we have a lot of good questions from uh, our learners today. And without further ado, we'll dive right into our first question. Um, next slide, please, Ben. Uh, as, um, the first question goes to Dr. Evans. What are crisis standards of care and how do we know that we are in crisis? Thanks, Rick Roman, and thanks for the introduction. And it's great to be here and see many uh, friends and colleagues, um, both in the panel as well as, uh, as uh, attendees to the session. Um, so thanks for the question about what are crisis standards of care. And I think the harder question is the second one you've put on there, which is how do we know we are in crisis? Um, you can ask for the next slide. So most of us, I think, use this conceptual definition that was um, initially put forth by the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, that defines crisis standards of care as a substantial change in usual healthcare operations and the level of care that is possible to deliver made necessary by a pervasive, like a pandemic, for example, um, or a catastrophic disaster. And I think that's a conceptual definition that we can all sort of resonate behind. But I think the second part of that question of what are, or how do we know we're in crisis, really represents a little bit harder. And I think we'll get into some of that meat within the discussion today. I wanna to thank Asha um, for the photo here, which is actually, I think, one of the concepts that we get behind in terms of thinking about crisis standards of care, are we offering care in alternative sites of care? And so this is from Imperial County, California, um, and this is actually in use as a donning and doffing station in an alternative care site there. Um, we can go to the next slide. I think one critical concept that we have to kind of get ahead of right now at the very beginning of this webinar is that crisis standards of care or being in crisis standards of care is not an optional event. 
Now, we certainly need to do everything we can to stay out of crisis standards of care, and that's another theme that I think we'll hear a lot about is how do you substitute, adapt, reuse in order to stay in contingency care as much as you can and stay out of crisis standards of care. But it's a forced choice. And then under circumstances that would compel you to adapt crisis standards of care, failing to adapt them will likely result in greater death, injury, or illness than adapting them. And so it's sort of the, the least bad of bad options, but it's not an option to sort of stay out altogether. And that the failure to formally adapt a crisis standards of care model will probably lead to greater harm under those circumstances. You can go to the next slide. So this is a really helpful, I think, schematic um, from the CHESS consensus statement on mass critical care that you know, some of the panelists were authors on. And I think what I particularly like about it is both the very upper and the lower bars on it, and that they describe this as a continuum between conventional care to crisis standards of care, passing through a contingency zone. And we'll come back to these themes more, but I think one of the things we'll come out of today with is that this is really going to be about moving along a continuum, not necessarily moving discreetly from zone to zone in a very clear sense. So with that, I think I'm gonna turn it back um, and oh, actually, let me go one more slide and then I'm gonna turn it back to the group. So I'm gonna put forth with this, and again, thanks to Asha for this, I think put forth this, this sort of teaser that I think we're right now probably in a chronic contingency zone in many areas of the US. Some are probably in crisis, um, but in the US I think as a whole, we're probably in chronic contingency where we are reusing, repurposing, modifying, substituting and adapting our normal practices um, in order to that, and that we've been in that space for quite a long time. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Vikram, and maybe uh, get some questions from the other panelists, unless anybody has anything they want to add at this point. Uh, thank you, Laura. It's so much worth reminding everybody here that it's not an option, and we are suddenly forced into going into crisis. No one really wants to be in that state. Thank you for that. Um, next slide, please, Beth. Um, now, my question for you, Asha, and you've done so much work on this. Um, as you know, there are existing guidelines describing crisis standards of care. Uh, what's the issue? Are they easy to operationalize? Thank you for um, that question, the introduction, and, uh, and um, I'm honored to be part of this um, panel. Um, yes, we've been working on this for a very long, long time. Um, and after um, witnessing Hurricane Katrina, we realized we did not have a concept of operations on what would it look like if we had a disaster and um, that affected an entire city region. Um, and so uh, we did come up with some framework um, for crisis standards. And that led to um, a national kind of framework, if you'll um, go to the next slide. Um, it, term crisis standards of care. Um, this was put out by the National Academies of Medicine and Jeff and I were a part of that um, product um, following our work that we had done in um, uh, with the ACCP and the Mass Critical Care Task Force um, in 2008. Um, and this was put out in 2012. Now this guideline is the national, national one is 582 pages long. And right now, um, not only are we trying to just learn COVID and all of the demands there, 
um, a whole new disease entity. But a protocol and a guideline and things that need to be practiced in disaster drills um, repetitively, um, now we have to like drink from a fire hose of information. So um, unfortunately, these guidelines aren't embedded into our day-to-day um, business. We, we don't um, just think like that automatically. There's also an entire new terminology that in healthcare we really aren't as familiar with um, called the incident command system, which we'll go into in a little while. But that new terminology clicks in when states and the feds respond to help us with our resources. However, inside a hospital, we're not as familiar with it as clinicians. And the chain of command and the flow of information is maybe a little bit slower. And so we're not used to that. So we've got to learn a whole new system of operations in order to implement guidelines. Um, and then even if we practice and, and do our best and, and figure out how to work all the guidelines, the people who you may end up working with may not know about all of that. And you have to rework the team. And um, when a work group has worked well together, um, they can implement and work efficiently. But when you have um, new variables thrown in, it can also um, make make the information that was transmitted in those guidelines difficult and communication um, in every single disaster response. Communication also is a big issue um, in implementation. And if there are gaps, that makes the guidelines also very difficult to adapt to. Next slide. Um, so, the other thing that I'm sure our panelists will notice is that situational awareness. When you're in the midst of a crisis, how do you know you're in crisis like Laura had mentioned? Um, how do you know what resources are available? Um, it requires minute to minute updates situation um, and like I mentioned before communication. So um, right now we are all um, isolated and even in the practice of uh, medicine, we're in the COVID unit. Uh, we are um, not, it's hard to communicate even just within your um, space. And that's gonna make it even more challenging. How does information get to the bedside if you are kind of locked in a certain zone? And um, so those are also very important challenges that we need to consider um, ahead of the fact when implementing some of our recommendations. So thank you, Vikram. Uh, thank you, Asha. Um, my next question is uh, for Jeff. Um, as we all know, the, co the, the COVID-19 pandemic exponentially st is still growing across many, many states of the United States and globally. Um, can you give us a brief insight into the U.S. situation, situation states that are currently in crisis standards of care and that are close to implementing these standards. Thank you, Vikram, and thank you for that nice introduction. I too am honored to be uh, among this distinguished panel. Uh, next slide, please, Beth. Um, so the short answer is these four states, Florida, Texas, California, and Arizona are either at crisis standards of care or very nearly getting there. Um, and as I, as I look at it, having quite a bit of experience with my own state, as I'm sure many of you within your own cities and states have the same or similar experiences, 
when you look at it from the outside, it's really hard to know exactly what data lands you in crisis standards of care. Next slide, please. Um, so one of the most useful places of information is I found the Washington Post or the New York Times, both of which are referenced in the slides. So here we're looking at the number of cases which are growing in Florida, Texas, California, and Georgia. Um, go ahead, next slide, please. So cases are an early indicator. These are the number of deaths, which is a, really the latest indicator. And the next slide, please. And this is from, the next slide is from the state of Minnesota, which is a remarkably robust website. It's showing a lot of data. And this is day-to-day -day, um, total cases are blue and green together, hospital or blue and ICU only are green. The important thing to realize here is that there is no one piece of information or even a whole set of information that gives you the complete picture. Um, when you're looking at crisis standards of care in any given state, um, you're looking at, again, are your ICU beds full? Are your ventilators all used? Are you using your surge capacity? Um, do you have enough staff? Are you transferring patients? Those are some of the barometers that when I look at things tell me that a region or a city is moving towards crisis standards of care. Um, for those of you who have looked at the websites, um, Arizona, for instance, has a lot of information. Texas and Florida have very little information. So when you're trying to look at this and assess it, it's really difficult to know exactly where you're at. But again, or where any other city or state is at in crisis standards. But again, within the popular media, the things that I learned are that listening to Florida and Miami in particular, they're at a point where their ICUs are full and they're transferring patients to other parts of the state. Some of the things that I learned uh, experience from my colleague Asha Devereaux when she was working in the Imperial Valley of California is that from the media reports there, they had transferred 500 patients out within about a two week period to other parts throughout the state of California. That's crisis standards of care. I know from her also that they're providing care on the floor of the gym. So those are the kinds of indicators that you know when you're in a, in a region that you're really functioning in crisis standards of care. I'll talk a little bit more about this in my next section later on. But again, the most important thing is looking at your resources and how full they are, specific your ICU beds, your ventilators. And the hardest nut to crack is really knowing how many staff you have, whether it's physicians or nursing staff. And just from listening to our popular media, I think throughout the United States, probably the most precious resource is really personnel, particularly nursing staff. And I'll go ahead and pause there, Vicko. Uh, thank you, Beth. That was uh, very informative. Thank you. Uh, Beth, next slide, please. Um, so this brings up the question of resource allocation when you don't have enough uh, supply to, to meet your demands. And uh, ethical resource allocation is key when implementing crisis standards of care. Um, Ryan, what are the resources that we need to consider, uh, especially in the setting of a COVID-19 pandemic? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mukherjee, and thank you also to my, my colleagues here on this panel and to Chess for the opportunity to talk about this. So before we talk about the ethical allocation of resources, we first of all just need to establish what those resources are. And so I suspect a lot of the folks listening to this have heard some of these before, but it's useful to take a look at it again, especially in the context of COVID. If I could have the next slide, please. So the, the three pillars, if you will, of resource allocation in times of crisis have been divided up um, by our predecessors on the Task Force of Mass Critical Care, including Dr. Devereaux and Dr. Dichter. Um, 
but stuff, staff, and space is kind of the traditional triad that we look at. And so stuff, I think we all remember very early in the, in the pandemic and still is an ongoing concern, ventilator shortages and a lot of attention in the popular media to shortages of ventilators. But in speaking with, uh, with colleagues, including uh, Dr. Mukherjee and Dr. Upal, you know, dialysis machines were often equally limiting as a kind of scarce resource that one can run out of. Then, in addition to just the simple machines, the associated consumables that go with it, medications, uh, neuromuscular blockade agents and sedatives being things that are relatively easy to burn through. So knowing how much of that you have. And then, of course, PPE, which can, continues to be an ongoing shortage uh, nationally and in other parts of the world. And we've developed a lot of techniques for extending our use of PPE. Uh, IDSA has developed guidelines for the uh, extended use and reuse of PPE, for example, a lot of attention and technology has gone into finding ways to stretch out those resources. Uh, staff is the next one, and uh, as Dr. Dichter mentioned, uh, acute care trained physicians, nurses, um, NPs and PAs, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, EMTs, all of these things are going to be, you know, it, it turns out there aren't that many of us in the world, and having a way to uh, you know, we can we can have the National Production, uh, the Defense Production Act make more ventilators, but it's pretty hard for uh, legislation to create more ICU nurses. Um, other critical supporting staff, though, um, who can be equally impacted, uh, CNAs, uh, the folks who prepare food at the hospital, all of those folks not only can be in shortage, but may also be personally impacted by the disaster or by the pandemic. Uh, and so calculations for the impact uh, of a pandemic on your staff in terms of availability, that really affects your resources a lot. Lastly, space. So uh, as uh, Dr. Devereaux alluded to in Imperial County, which is just to the, uh, the east of where, uh, where I live, um, we have alternate care sites. And so there's a limitation in physical ICU and ward beds and the need to generate these alternate sites of care. Uh, it is useful to, to, to remember, I think for all of us, that, that critical care is not the ICU that critical care is a concept, not a location. And the ability to expand uh, care for seriously ill patients, not just within the traditional ICU, but to alternate sites in the hospital, like the PACU, for example, perhaps parts of the emergency department, not preferable, but can be done. And then possibly outside of the physical ICU in the tent hospitals. Even beyond that, with COVID in particular, we have to worry about things like the availability of negative pressure rooms, of airborne infection isolation rooms. Uh, and I think most of our institutions have done a very good job at generating new AIIRs that we can use. Um, but all of those are hard limitations on what we can do. And overarching all three of these, as Dr. Dichter alluded to, are the need for systems, the needs for some sort of communications, command and control, some central place that can help us coordinate things like the movement of patients out of Miami to other parts of Florida, like the movement of ventilators from one state to another when one state is doing pretty well and another state is in crisis. If I could see the next slide, please. So this is a graphic by Dr. Mike Christian, who's a colleague of many of ours. And uh, Mike is really one of the, the leaders in this, uh, in this area. Uh, but it just shows, it just illustrates the things that go into supply and the things that go into demand. And essentially when demand exceeds supply, that is what starts to push us into crisis. Now we can take steps on the right-hand side, uh, finding ways to, with stuff, for example, to conserve, to substitute, to adapt, to reuse that can keep us out of true crisis, but that still locks you pretty hard into contingency. And as alluded to earlier, we are in kind of a chronic contingency right now. Uh, next slide, please. 
So how is COVID different than other disasters? How is this different than an earthquake? How is this different than a hurricane or some time-limited geographically restricted event? Well, part of the problem is the scope of our contingency makes supply shortages chronic. Uh, we've adapted to many of them, but certainly not all of them. Uh, reallocation of equipment between more and less affected areas, that can be limited if other areas are comparably affected. And then lastly, this shift in stuff from single-use to reusable equipment, which again may turn out to be a good way to build resilience in our systems going forward, that maybe, you know, reusable uh, respirator devices instead of single-use N95s. Uh, among staff, it's a bit more challenging because, again, caregiver fatigue and burnout are happening in a setting where clinicians in critical care and in general were already suffering from dramatically high rates of fatigue and burnout, even before all of this hit. In addition to that, there's personal risks that caregivers, nurses, physicians, RTs are taking to, on some level a very real personal risk in the care of patients with COVID. On the flip side, we're probably getting better at this. And this increasing experience is having an impact on our mortality. It's having an impact on case fatality rates. Lastly, uh, with space, we've made a lot of progress with converting new negative pressure rooms. Uh, a lot of our hospitals have gotten used to handling higher levels of acuity on the wards. That mitigates some of the space demands, but certainly not all of it. Um, and at that, I'm gonna pass on to my next colleague. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, thanks, Ryan. That was a beautiful description of what's, what are the three pillars. Why don't I have you here? You know, when uh, uh, supply and demand don't match each other, often we have to use tools to decide how to allocate our resources. Um, what are the tools that are available to more objectively allocate scarce resources to standardize processes? Yeah, and so what we're talking about are what kinds of tools can we use to decide who gets some sort of scarce resource. You know, uh, the, the question said objectively, and I have to admit that I wonder, on some level, objectivity is a bit of a misnomer, right? We try to find ways to quantify things. We try to find ways to, to assign a number to who gets a vent or who gets a dialysis machine. But on some level, all of these things are going to be statements of our beliefs or statements of our values. And there's always going to be some subjective human element that has to go into, into that. So that being said, you know, we can make certain assumptions when we're going into scarce resource allocation. One is that we have maximized our use of that reuse, replacement, substitution strategies to keep us out of crisis for as long as possible. So for example, if we're short on cisatricurium, switching to push dose rocuronium, or perhaps infusions of VEC or something like that. Uh, if we're running short on fentanyl, switching over to oral oxycodone down an OG tube as a way to get past it. In some cases, these reallocations and reuses could lead to an improvement in care. Uh, in other cases, they are second best. Uh, using a SLED instead of CRRT. Um, that being said, you then have to figure out, is there an objective or validated method to identify patients most likely to benefit from some scarce resource? And in many cases, there aren't. Um, I think a lot of us remember from early in the pandemic and still ongoing, a lot of discussion about ventilator allocation and who gets the vent. Um, I'm not sure yet that we've really cracked the code on that. And there's a few reasons for that. One is there's a lot of attention played, paid to physiologic scoring systems like uh, SOPA scores. One of the challenges with SOPA scores is we are not sure how predictive they are of survival in particularly in severe viral respiratory infections. There's some data from, uh, for example, from pandemic influenza modeling where people with very high SOPA scores at presentation, 12, 13, 14, may still have a pretty high survival if 
allocated to standard critical care. And so how do we unallocate them when SOPA is not as predictive as we think it might be? Um, looking at things like uh, comorbidity indices, uh, like the Charleston Comorbidity Index, for example, which we've looked at here in San Diego, you know, one of the challenges of that is that populations with high burdens of comorbidity, such as the African-American community or others, there's a very real risk that we could do some degree of harm with those indices. Um, and, and so these need to be addressed in a way that makes sure that we're not uh, allocate, you know, allocating people out of inclusion, right? Um, frailty, frailty might be good. There is some limitation. Um, there is some data, I'm sorry, out of the UK and in the general critical care literature that perhaps some standardized frailty index might be an objective tool that helps us identify who's most likely to benefit from critical care. That needs to be looked at a little harder in COVID. Uh, there's a good trial from the UK that looks at, not trial, but rather uh, observational study from the UK that looks at that. Um, but ultimately it's gonna depend, I think, on what the resource is. So I think uh, remdesivir is a good example. So with remdesivir, we have a drug that reduces morbidity, but not mortality. Um, probably. It may have some small mortality reduction, but that's as yet unproven. And probably doesn't benefit people on the ventilator all that much. So with remdesivir, one could make a case for random allocation, that instead of scoring systems, it could be by lottery. And from an ethical standpoint, knowing that you are not harming someone by withholding remdesivir in the terms of you're not increasing the risk of mortality, I think that makes that a fairly rational way to go forward. Uh, when you get to things like ventilators and hemodialysis, though, it gets more complicated. And there's a number of published uh, proposed triage methods, both by municipalities, by states, uh, and by um, professional organizations and, and national and international experts that I think all of us need to look at to, to decide what way works with them. But, but community engagement has to be key to devising whatever that mechanism is. And I see... Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Evans just mentioned Lee Bittison. That's exactly who I was thinking of as a person whose work has really been the model for how we can do that. Because that can't be a decision made by doctors. It can't be a decision made by nurses. It has to be made by, by communities. And I mean communities with a capital C. Uh, it has to be everyone involved in that or else it, or else it becomes ethically very fraught in a situation that is ethically challenging to begin with. Thank you very much. Wonderful. I hope that answers the question. It does, right? And thank you for your being so eloquent. I just want to add uh, a question from the uh, attendees. Can you make age more than 85 years as a limiting factor to get ventilators? Uh, personally, I think using just age is a pretty crude tool and you can have healthy 95-year-olds and not so healthy 50-year-olds. So uh, to the question for the attendee, uh, just using age might be a pretty crude tool uh, to decide whether someone should get a ration, uh, a particular resource or not. Um, next question, uh, next slide, please, Beth. Um, this is for uh, Amit. Amit, uh, you have lived through this. Uh, you were uh, leading the, uh, the surge response for the largest public health system in uh, the country, in New York City. And as head of critical care at Bellevue, you had so much, such a huge role to play about resource allocation and handling <coughs> the pandemic ethically. Question for you, major hospital systems in New York City had to implement these principles of resource allocation. What lessons can Arizona, Florida, Texas, the rest of the country learn from, your, from our experiences here? Yeah, uh, great question. Thanks for having me. Um, and, and thanks to the rest of the group for all the, the great comments that are made so far. Um, so our experience was interesting. I think, you know, we, uh, as we started seeing cases uh, in New York City, um, we, we clearly thought about this as everyone else did. 
Um, and we looked at what we had available to us, um, the critical care society guidelines. And most proximal to us was uh, we actually had New York State ventilator allocation guidelines intended for pandemic flu that had been drafted in 2015. Uh, we're lucky enough to have a state level um, ethic, uh, medical ethics committee that worked together with our Department of Health to draft these guidelines. Um, and I think there was uh, something safe about having a, 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 a guideline drafted in your own state. It probably felt like it provided some legal protection as well. Um, and so we, we drafted our own local guidelines for our uh, uh, hospital that uh, were adapted around our network uh, as well, uh, that were, were based on the same principles as those guidelines laid out. Um, and so some bullet points uh, for those 2015 guidelines uh, were that the guidelines should be implemented at the state level uh, on the idea that from a pure ethics standpoint, we shouldn't be allocating resources until we are truly out of resources. If there's, uh, you know, the resource you're thinking of is uh, geographically nearby, uh, you should make every effort to have access to that resource as opposed to allocating uh, in a local area. Um, you should have a, a very objective and systematic approach uh, to allocation uh, that sets the goal of saving as many lives as possible in the case of a pandemic. Um, and that the clinical team will inform the characterization of patients and, and maybe the, uh, the scoring of patients, uh, but that a triage officer or a triage team uh, will, will ultimately be responsible level that patient gets for whether or not a resource will be allocated to them. And so, uh, you know, I'd like to sort of list some of the shortcomings we found during this experience, not as a critique of those guidelines at all, uh, but perhaps as an opportunity for us as a critical care community to learn uh, from this experience and adapt um, our future preparation. Um, so first and foremost, the, those guidelines were limited to ventilator allocation um, and didn't consider many of the other factors that have been uh, mentioned today. Uh, physical space, uh, staffing, medical interventions such as dialysis, medications. Um, so to give a couple of examples, uh, we had our primary typical uh, optimal ICU space and then we had makeshift ICUs that we had created. How do we decide who gets which? Do the sickest patients go into our optimal ICU or do those who are most likely to survive um, go into the optimal ICU uh, as one example. Uh, another would be that we exceeded our capacity to deliver renal replacement therapy at least the way that we typically do. Um, and so we had, to, we had to make adjustments to that. So do we provide suboptimal renal replacement to a large number of patients or do we stick to optimal uh, renal replacement for a limited number of patients? Uh, and how do we make those decisions? So the, the, the scope of the guidelines we had available to us didn't, didn't cover uh, that level of nuance. Um, another thing that we found uh, that didn't serve our needs was the notion that there would be this steady and stepwise prog progression uh, towards uh, resource allocation, that we would slowly run out of a resource or a limited number of resources, and then we would click into resource allocation mode, and we would have some sort of meeting and committee uh, would be activated. And from there forward, we would be in resource allocation mode. Um, that simply wasn't our experience at all. Um, we had an early phase in which we had the space and the staff and the equipment for patients coming in, and we treated them as, uh, as we do under normal circumstances, albeit uh, we were far busier. Um, as we approached our capacity within each of those categories, uh, we found, you know, new ways to expand our capacity or to uh, you know, limit uh, some of the things that we were doing in order to provide a higher capacity uh, to provide all those resources to every patient. Um, but we found ourselves flipping between states of resource allocation. So 
today we have plenty of ICU ventilators on hand. So anybody that comes in and gets intubated today gets an ICU ventilator. Uh, tomorrow, we don't have any ICU ventilators, but we have BiPAP machines that we can use invasively, or we have transport ventilators that we can use. Um, and, and the next day, maybe we have ICU ventilators freed up again. So do we switch people that are sick back onto the ICU ventilators or do those now go to our new admissions? Um, so it was, it was really a, a day, daily flip, even in the ventilator category. Um, perhaps even more complex was our approach to delivering dialysis. So perhaps today we have uh, plenty of machines, but not that many filters. So we're going to dialyze people for as long as we can to get the, as, as much as we can out of one filter. Tomorrow, maybe we have plenty of filters, and not that many machines. So we're going to do six hour runs on as many patients as we can to uh, uh, try to optimize them as much as we can in that time frame. Um, so it wasn't a, a, an on off switch where, uh, you know, we're suddenly in resource allocation and then we're not. Um, the, the idea that the clinical leadership team or the, 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 the um, bedside clinicians uh, would not be paramount in this process or would not really be um, categorizing patients um, was, was difficult um, in our circumstance, at least, uh, because the circumstances that I just described were, were so nuanced and so complex about which patient really needs dialysis today and which one can could, could uh, get by with six hours of dialysis and study 24. Those are very clinical decisions, uh, subspecialty clinical decisions. Um, similar with the, you know, which patients are most appropriate for which kind of ventilators. Um, and so we found ourselves not really being able to uh, find unbiased people that weren't part of the clinical team because anybody who had those clinical skills we needed for patient care. Uh, so we actually reached out uh, to our local and our, our state level ethics committee to make that point. Uh, and they, they fully agreed with us on that, that in this context, in the context you're in, uh, you're really making decisions on likelihood of benefit from these interventions, and you have to rely on people who have the expertise to make that judgment. And so they fully supported us that our, our clinical teams and our bedside providers had to be uh, a part of that process. Um, another challenge was the expectation that the entire state would activate these allocation guidelines at the same time. I think that was designed for flu numbers creeping up, hospitals running out of ventilators uh, in, in some progressive way. Um, and what we saw with COVID was very disproportionate um, impact on different communities. Some neighborhoods were completely overwhelmed, some were very spared, and that's just within NYC. Uh, if you look at the other parts of the states that were business as usual and then, um, you know, had tremendous capacity. Um, so that, was, that wasn't really practical for us uh, to think in those terms. Um, there was a mention about SOFA scoring uh, and the guidelines that we had available to us relied heavily on SOFA scoring uh, to categorize patients. Um, we were concerned that we were still learning a lot about this disease and we didn't know that that score was valid uh, in predicting short-term mortality or long-term mortality in our patients. And uh, uh, our prototypical patient honestly came in severely hypoxemic with a very low P to F ratio, often completely obtunded, often in enuric renal failure on high dose pressors. And that would, be present at time zero and at 72 hours. And some of those patients survived. Uh, some of the survivors that are still in the hospital now met those criteria. Um, so the SOFA score we didn't feel uh, was necessarily a good indicator uh, at the time for, for how to categorize patients. Um, and, and honestly, as our knowledge of this disease grew, we feel we got better at predicting um, how, how people were doing, but that was not you know, a validated score that we were used to using um, that we could apply. Um, and then lastly, one thing that I wanted to touch on because it had a lot of practical implications and because I think it had potential for 
some of the psychological impact on your clinical providers was whether or not we had legal protections uh, for the decisions we were making. We were certainly not operating under standard practice. Um, uh, and so what would happen um, uh, should there be legal action brought for those? Uh, the, the governor uh, of New York made a, an executive order which provided immunity for healthcare providers that were contributing to our state's COVID response um, within a uh, you know, certain date range. Um, this covered things like documentation requirements, um, whether or not trainees had to be supervised, uh, things like that, medical licensure for our state, which allowed us to have uh, volunteers from other states come and, and help us without getting a New York state medical license. Uh, but regarding clinical decisions and care, um, the exact wording was that we're immune from anything but gross negligence. Um, and I heard from several legal experts that uh, anybody is free to call what you did negligent. Uh, and, and so, you know, that doesn't necessarily uh, provide protection. Um, and secondly, it, um, it doesn't stop anyone from, from suing a, a clinical provider for doing that, which means the potential for incurring legal costs, even if it's not a, a valid lawsuit in the end. Um, so I think, you know, in the future, uh, certainly we could learn from that experience and making sure that our providers didn't have this added psychological stress of being held legally responsible for uh, what was an unavoidable situation that they'd rather not be in. Um, uh, so those are my comments on that. I, I that wasn't too long-winded of an answer to that question. Uh, that, that's great, Amit, and thank you. I mean, you bring uh, so much uh, insight into how these guidelines can affect when you're in the front lines. Um, you mentioned something really important that it wasn't always very clear whether we were in crisis and we were not in crisis. Um, Beth, next slide, please. So I will ask Laura for the next uh, uh, question. When facing a challenge such as the COVID-19 pandemic, affected healthcare systems can fall in and out of crisis hands of care. How do we approach implementing these guidelines when the ground situation in the front line is uh, so fluid? Thanks, Vikram. And we can go to the next slide. And, and I want to particularly thank Amit for sharing the New York City experience because I think it's so valuable uh, for folks, uh, not just across the US, but everywhere that is, are struggling with these same circumstances. And I, and I commend you for sharing that information because I think getting it out broadly is of service to the community. I think it's what, what a lot of what you said really resonated with me in thinking about these conceptual models around crisis standards of care and around this concept of triage where it's either on or it's off and you get a resource or you don't get a resource. And it struck me that the experience that you're describing sort of highlights a lot of the limitations around that current thinking that yes, you get a ventilator or no, you don't get a ventilator. And that's in some ways, I think, a great way to frame the conceptual model because we sort of know how many ventilators we have in general. Um, Ventilators are not so common or so inexpensive that we 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 know generally where they are, um, and so they're they're kind of a finite resource that we can wrap our heads around with that. But I I'm hearing in the circumstance of New York City and from having the opportunity to go there for a couple of weeks during the peak, that the limitations and sort of the choke points and resources were widely varying, often multiple choke points at once. Um, and often sort of frequently changing as well. So one day it might be one resource that was scarce. You may get another shipment of that particular resource in, and the next day maybe another resource that's scarce. And I think it illustrates the kind of difficulty in saying that we're either in crisis standards of care or we're out of crisis standards of care. You may be bouncing back and forth between kind of high level contingency and crisis, moving towards triage, 
relatively frequently. And, and so I think going forward, and, and I think we'll hear from Jeff about this at the end, is this idea of how do the how can we adapt the models to be more nimble um, and sort of better reflect that reality on the ground? Because I think there is a lot of issues around how do we really identify which patients are most likely to benefit from a resource? And I agree wholeheartedly with what Ryan said, that it probably depends on the resource. Is the same patient most likely to ventilate, are they most likely to benefit from any resource, a ventilator, a dialysis machine, you know, a conventional ICU rather than a pop-up ICU bed, the provision of CRRT compared to, um, you know, intermittent periodic renal replacement therapy. And I don't think we know enough certainly about COVID nor about most critical illness to really understand those new prognostic nuances to really be able to identify which patients are most likely to benefit. And I think you're absolutely right that there is a sort of a, a core clinical knowledge that has to influence this because the prognostic scoring system SOFA was not designed for this purpose. It kind of gives us this illusion of objectivity that I have a score, but does that score reflect meaningful prognosis in the situation that we're applying it to? And there was a comment in the chat box, which I think is really important to note is that when we're talking about triaging or allocating scarce resources, they apply to all patients, not just COVID patients or not just patients in or who are subject to the disaster that uh, led to the implementation of crisis standards of care, but they would apply to the subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, other folks who have critical illness during that same period of time. And I think it's very hard to use one single prognostic scoring system that applies broadly to every critically ill patient. I think all of us who work in the ICU every day recognize that that doesn't really exist per se. And it's hard to collect, sort of check our clinical judgment about this patient's going to do well and do not, but that does raise this the thorny issue of how do you insulate the triage team from these decisions and how do you make sure the triage team has enough nuanced information while preserving access to care, equity, but can make good decisions in that. So I realize I've raised many, many more questions than I answered there, um, but hopefully it will be provocative. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it back to Vikram and, and let him deal with the fallout from it. <laughs> No, thanks, Laura. I mean, it's very clear that even in a group of experts, uh, implementing existing crisis standards of care isn't easy, especially when dealing with a novel pathogen such as SARS-CoV-2. Uh, you brought up the question of triage teams. Next slide, please, Beth. And, uh, you know, a lot of us in routine life uh, aren't very conversant with the concept of triage teams. You often hear about triage teams making important decisions regarding resource allocation. Um, uh, Asha, what are, the, what are triage teams and how can we optimize their role at the front lines? That's a great question. Um, and if you can go to the next slide. So um, triage is a battlefield concept um, when you're trying to save the most lives with whatever resources you have. And now it's become kind of our norm. Um, Mike Christian has explained it very well into the ICU. And when we are, um, when we considered how to fairly allocate a scarce resource. Um, we as clinicians are advocates for our patients. That's what, who we're trying to save. We may not have that, what I uh, term situational awareness. What are the resources out there? Um, so you may need a group of people that's sitting within the kind of command center of your hospital 
looking at the situation, trying to grab resources from wherever they can and then funnel them to your intensive care unit. Um, we, I, the, in the chat box, everyone's saying, how can we get off the sofa, um, so to speak, in terms of triage tools? Um, I'd like to argue that by setting up these teams and addressing crisis care in your communities, you may actually develop coalitions and communication laterally with other hospital systems that are, are usually competitive and now figure out how to share things um, throughout your uh, city, county, region, state, neighboring states um, across the country. And those, by doing all of that, hopefully the triage team will never need to be activated. Um, and, and these team of people um, are folks who are going to have to, in a very unbiased and blinded manner, um, decide how, where the resources will go. Ideally, it is somebody, as Amit had suggested, somebody very experienced, senior, um, and maybe retired, and I'll go into some of those stories with that. Um, and then uh, what about moral distress, equity, burnout? Those are things that are very valid. And, um, and the triage team will have to help um, address that for our frontline clinicians as well as their own um, personal uh, burnout and um, distress that may go into making those choices. So next slide. So um, in San Diego, um, I was asked to help um, early on as we were witnessing what was happening in New York. Um, folks didn't, weren't aware of the guidelines. Um, that group had maybe moved on, retired, uh, guidelines had been put on a shelf, um, and they hadn't been practiced. And so folks who were in our county had only maybe a year of experience and in that setting and needed to figure out how to set up crisis standards of care. And what we did is on the, um, the picture from the on the left that Mike had uh, Mike Christian had created, um, we tried to get hospital triage teams set up and uh, a crisis care committee. Um, I can tell tell you that we did form that within our uh, county public health office. However, um, healthcare has changed since we've written the guidelines. And, and since the onset of this pandemic, um, there are political, economic uh, influences and forces at play that has made this process um, a little challenging. But we do need oversight in some form to ensure fairness and equity um, for all hospital systems. And so now, um, we are likely going to have our crisis care committee a little bit outside of the hospital system, but maybe not in a government body. But the best part of just having the conversation is we brought together all the hospital systems in our county um, to talk about this topic. And, and I thank Ryan uh, Maves on, on this um, call as well, because he was part of our triage tool group. We were, we actually tried to even, create our triage tool because at that time our state guidance was not present. Um, the difficulty in assimilating all the different guidance that's out there, there are right now 23 states that have state crisis standards of care guidelines in place. 
and they all have um, varied nuances based on their community input or their ethics team input and um, and also legal challenges that have also driven those changes. And so those are very important considerations to keep in mind. But the best thing that I would have to say that's come out of this is by trying to discuss triage with other hospitals, you've developed a framework. And I don't think it's ever too late to start that. Now a triage team um, is a group of people that will be part of your incident command system and then um, we in San Diego, and I know I don't, it, this may be a little difficult to um, visualize, um, had envisioned maybe three people, a senior triage officer with critical care experience. And in many of our hospitals, they chose them to be two physicians and an admin officer or a critical care nurse. That team would then be reporting to the incident command system. How to keep them blinded from the bedside um, uh, decisions and, and the patient information because the Office of Civil um, uh, Rights had come out, age cannot be used as a criteria in determining um, who gets a resource or who doesn't. Um, so we needed to make sure that if um, our allocation criteria was just um, as unbiased as possible and as Ryan had alluded to, looked at comorbidities, but there isn't anything perfect. Um, so these teams need to be supported um, by ethicists, chaplains, um, the legal system, and, and then um, how do those decisions get transmitted up? And that is by um, an, uh, maybe a central liaison that is looking at whatever scoring system is chosen, and they report that, and then the um, they get a priority score. So the triage team is hopefully only just knows we need, um, we have four people who need X resource. And then when that resource comes in, it's delivered. And so in a nutshell, because of the interest of time, I wanna just um, highlight that we, this has to be practiced. We did use um, a virtual platform and it had over 70 participants and we drilled the triage teams and we learned a lot from the community by doing that. And you can do tabletop exercises to practice this and that it is strongly recommended that as you are doing that, you try to practice with that, even now. I, and I think Vikram, that's um, what I have for triage teams. Thank you, Asha, thank you very much. Uh, next slide, please. Um, uh, as you've established so far, uh, resource sharing is integral to prevent uh, institutions from going into crisis times of care. Uh, Amit, going back to the New York City experience, uh, what do you think worked in New York City um, and what could have worked better, uh, not just in the network, but outside of the network? Yeah, this turned out to be a, a real important issue and I think could be a, a big a part of improvement efforts in the future. Um, so within the public health system, uh, we really wanted our ICUs to to operate conceptually as one big ICU that we we could leverage our size uh, to uh, maybe support neighborhoods that were disproportionately affected within our network by uh, leveraging our other hospitals. And we we realized early on that any individual ICU director or hospital leader uh, would probably be wanting to stockpile resources and supplies to protect their hospital um, from being in a bad situation. And so that was 
something that we had to um, find a solution to. And uh, what worked really well for us was to control resource uh, distribution, but also to be very transparent about it. Uh, so uh, all of our uh, resource procurements, such as ventilators and dialysis supplies and machines and staffing, uh, was handled centrally uh, by our network leadership and distributed based on need uh, to our hospitals uh, so that they didn't all end up at one hospital that actually was less impacted and then be unavailable for hospitals that were more impacted. Uh, and that worked really well. Uh, the, the key to that was that every day there was a report about how each hospital was doing as far as um, patient volume admissions. Uh, so to take the ventilators as an example, you would see a report of every hospital, how many vents they had total, how many vented patients they had total, how many vents they had on standby, and how many vents have been sent to them in the last 24 hours. So if you're a hospital leader, uh, you, can, you can look at that report and see that people who need vents are getting vents and people who need staff are getting staff and feel uh, comforted by that. Um, and so that allowed us to um, send resources where they were uh, best utilized um, without causing um, anxiety uh, among the other hospitals on any given day. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is I think the most important thing we did within the public health system uh, was to make the decision to transfer patients out of hospitals that were disproportionately affected when necessary. Um, you, we sort of, in addition to individual resources, we tried to look at the totality of uh, hospitals' capacity to deliver critical care. And when that was threatened, it made more sense to move the patients out than to move the resources in. Uh, and so in the end, um, we moved over 500 patients uh, around our network, about 70 or so of those were ICU level. Um, and we, we felt uh, uh, very passionate about this to make sure that those hospitals could continue serving their communities uh, and, and not be overwhelmed and not have their EDs unavailable uh, to the people that live nearby. Um, so that's what our public health system did. Um, I think what didn't work as well as it could have was the statewide sharing. I, I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier, but there were uh, far more resources available within the state um, that we just didn't have the infrastructure or the systems or the, the pre-existing agreements um, to work uh, within our state as if our state's a, a one big ICU or one big hospital, if you want to see it that way. Um, so I think that is something that should definitely be part of our future planning as a state. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Amit. Um, uh, we have time for one more question. Beth, if you could just advance to the, the next slide after this and the last one. The next one, please. Wonderful. Um, so over the last uh, 56 minutes, we have, we have described what the issues are and how to approach this. I would like to ask Jeff, as the uh, expert on this topic, uh, uh, as the pandemic continues to rage, crisis times of care m will become relevant to many other states. Um, what can we do to optimize our approach and cover some of the deficiencies that we just described? Thank you, Vikram. And much of what I've learned from this experience with COVID, as well as I've learned from all of you on this panel, um, if there are two things that resonate, it's communication and teamwork. Those are absolutely crucial in managing this pandemic across wide areas and regions. Um, I particularly appreciate Amit's description of what was done in the Bellevue and the New York City Health System. They were not only moving resources across many hospitals, they were moving they potentially personnel, they were transferring patients as they needed to. One thing that was probably not as robust from what I've learned about New York is the ability to move between different health systems and communicate within them. I think that's absolutely crucial as you really move in towards crisis standards of care. 
Um, one of my favorite quotes, which I never get right, but I'm going to say it anyways, uh, is from Dwight Eisenhower, our previous president, our uh, key commander in Europe during World War II, who would always say that when you go into battle, plans are useless, but the planning was irreplaceable. The teams that you have to get together, you have to get together as soon as you can at the earliest opportunity. Uh, typically, uh, the example I like to use in Minnesota is that we have a partnership between the Department of Health and the Hospital Association, as well as the health systems. So the critical care teams have been working together for months. We didn't have a big spike, such as we're seeing in the four southern states. But we had a slow boil where we got to that boiling point slowly. When we finally said uncle, it was one of the health systems that had used all their ventilators and spaces, and they were out of nursing staff. We knew each other well, we had a mechanism to get together, and three hours we had a conference call, and within six hours, six patients had been transferred to other hospitals because they did not have the staff. You have to be able to know each other, communicate, even if it's just a phone call a couple of times a week to get to know each other across systems. It's crucial to be able to have those links so that you can move resources or move patients when you need to, back and forth, communication and teamwork. One of the, I've seen several people from Arizona put questions about, you know, the fact that Arizona has been in place of standards of care since I believe 2029. And the challenge I would have for all of them, and I have no information with that actually happening, you know, at, at the hospital level, with the individual level in Arizona. But before you should be using crisis standards of care, I would challenge everybody that every ad throughout the state of Arizona, <clears throat> excuse me, should be used. You should be able to know each other or some mechanism so that those beds are all being used before crisis standards of care, for instance, are being implemented. Something I learned from my colleague Asha Devereaux when she was deployed to the Imperial Valley several weeks ago is that they couldn't take care of all their patients and over a several week time, they couldn't provide all the care. They transferred 500 patients out to different places in California, which is a remarkable feat. But the principle again, is communication and teamwork and building those relationships to be able to move the patients and the resources when you need to. It's something that's important to realize as we see our case counts go above 4 million throughout the United States today. Those states are all in trouble. Georgia's not far behind, and there are many other states. Patients and resources may need to be moved between cities, between regions, between states, and trying to develop an infrastructure to do that to the degree that we are all able is absolutely crucial. I'm going to stop there, Vikram. Uh, thank you, Jess. Uh, very insightful. Um, I will end this at five, sharp five o'clock. Um, uh, thank you for your really insightful answers, um, uh, Laura, Ryan, Asha, Jeff, and Amit. Thank you for your guidance, and I hope our participants found this session useful. Um, as this uh, pandemic continues to evolve, I think this will be very topical to our practices at the front lines. Well, thank you all and uh, stay safe.